She is a professionally trained classical and opera singer and the founder of Five Senses Tastings and the company's cocktail branch, Song and Tonic. She composes full sensory events that weave together a diverse narrative guided by music and enhanced by flavor, bringing all five senses into harmony with one another and helping her clients achieve a state of sensory wellness is her greatest joy. She has been privileged to work with big brands and she's a former Bon Marrow donor. Firecrackers, please welcome Kala. Welcome to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. I'm Isabel, your host and founder and firebrand of The Uprising Spark, a digital platform that offers life coaching products and services for modern, independent, child-free women. Our aim is to build a strong female community and to connect empowered women around the globe. Ala, I know that you have, um, so the five senses tasting, uh-huh. which is, before you tell me what it is, the, the thing that really got me there was that you mix my two favorite things in the world, music and food. I get that a lot. <laughs> Those are like the two, my two favorite things. And I would really like uh, you to talk um, a little bit about how this came about and, and you know, how it works and Oh my God, I'm so excited. Let's talk about that. All right. So uh, Five Senses Tastings has kind of a lot of different origins. Uh, So I'm a trained opera singer. And as a classical opera singer, you often get two responses. So one of them is like this sort of, oh my God, you don't sing without a, um, you sing without a mic, you sing in all these languages. It's so amazing, impressive. Wow. You know, like put you on a pedestal. And then the other response is sort of like, I hate opera. Sorry. And so I got to thinking (laughs) a lot about how, how I grew up in a certain sensory ecosystem, how I like to think about it. So I grew up in Germany. So I grew up under gray skies, wearing a lot of clothing with no very, not very interesting spices in the food that we could get and in a classical household. So I had all these, you know, that was my sensory world. You know, you having grown up, lived in Colombia, you have different colors, different flavors, different sounds around you all the time. And I was learning about wine as I was thinking about this. And I thought, hey, I wonder if I could kind of address what I hear from people about opera in this way. Can you taste the music? Could you taste a little bit of opera and a little bit of bluegrass and a little bit of jazz and a little bit of flamenco? And would that work? And to make that more palatable, how about we taste things you already are used to tasting? Wine, cheese, chocolate, whiskey, that kind of stuff. So that's how the idea of tasting the music came about. Um, was really kind of a response to how I grew up, how I wanted to break out of my ecosystem. That's really interesting. So how does it work? Well, we, the mission of our company, really, the, the main purpose of everything is bringing the five senses into harmony. So a lot of times you will read cookbooks or you'll hear people talk about the five senses. But if you dig deep, oftentimes they're actually only talking about three or maybe four of them. So I really strive to bring every single sense into the foreground, into the same level of importance, customizing for each of the elements as, uh, in the same way. 
I am really interested in the story and the people behind everything. So while tasting notes for the wine are important, they are not um, typically in my experience as memorable as when we talk about the people behind the wine or, um, you know, the place that the wine comes from and how that links to the larger story that we're also bringing in through the, through the musical selections and the food selections. And so we always start with a story, a theme. It could be something we create, or it could be a person or an occasion that we're celebrating. And we break it down into parts, into acts, if you will. And then each act has kind of a guiding message. And that guiding message influences and educates the decisions that I make on the music, on the wine, and on the food. So it's all really about the story, but it's about getting to the, those wonderful little gems of information that maybe you wouldn't get if you just kind of went on a, on a superficial level. Um, yeah, so that's, that's how it works. Uh, we have both live events and non-live events. So our live events are kind of where it all started. Um, but working with bigger companies, corporations, um, conferences now, I actually have an option called our tasting table, which is where people kind of put on their wireless headphones and they take themselves on a self-guided journey through their tasting, uh, through the tasting table. Wow. I've never had an experience with food like that. I have heard about many restaurants, uh, well, not many, but a few restaurants mm -hmm. uh, that have, um, you know, the option of, you know, the headphones or, or maybe they try to put into the mix another one of the senses because usually with food, it's, it's like your eyesight, your smell, and then your taste basically. Yes. But then, uh, like you said, I mean, what about what you hear? So music, connecting music to that, or, or I'm, I'm thinking about touch as well. I mean, What's your mouth feel? So texture? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, but I find that really interesting because how do you hear food? So now you've found a way to, you know, connect that with the actual experience of, of eating. Yes. And I think, you know, there, there are so many, so many elements to music. I mean, there are the notes themselves, they're the harmonies, they're the instruments that you're playing with, they're the, you know, there's the range of the, of the music itself, the key and all that technical stuff. But then there is the composer and where that composer lived and why that composer wrote that and who influenced that composer. What period of their life were they composing this in? Uh, what year were they composing this in? What was happening in their life? Who's the poet? What was the poet's relationship to the composer? And all of a sudden you have this just explosion of information and, and, and bits that you can pull from that make it a much deeper experience than if you just say, hey, Pinot Noir goes with jazz music. That's an impossible thing to say because Pinot Noir is made in many, many parts of the world. And jazz music, I mean, it's too big to identify it as being the partner for Pinot Noir, right? So you have to go into the details of the actual bottle and then the actual piece of jazz music and then the actual version that you're performing in that given night. It has to be that specific or else you should just put on Pandora which is fine. I do that a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But that's the, the specificity that I think gets people really excited. And they leave our events and they, they remember stuff and they come back years later and they're like, I remember this thing because you told that story about the winemaker and then the composer was, you know, on a train to a concentration camp and I was so moved by that or whatever. That's what they remember is a story. Yeah. Hopefully well, that makes sense. No, it, I mean, it does. <laughs> I get a little carried away when I talk about this. <laughs> no, I, I love it. And I, I do, I mean, storytelling is a big thing. Uh, it's always been a big thing. It's just, 
in recent years, people have been using it for, you know, to put it in products or marketing or, you know, mm-hmm. but storytelling yeah. has always been a big thing. Always. Yeah. It's a buzzword now, but I mean, if you, you know, go back to cavemen, we were all scratching, using art and stories to record our lives for forever. I mean, that's yeah. just part of our DNA. Absolutely. And speaking about stories, did you know you wanted to become an opera singer since you were a kid? Uh, I actually tried not to be an opera singer for a really long time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I sang, but I always thought I had to do something really brainy. Um, and I thought, well, music's not brainy enough, which is a total lie. But for some reason, that's what I thought, probably because my family was musical. And I was like, well, I just do it. It's kind of easy. You know, like I could never play sports. And I know there are people who are like, who can't play sports or who can't draw me, right? Well, I could always sing really loud and sing on tune and sing pretty. So I tried to not be an opera singer until my uh, early 20s when I realized that I'd better, you know, bleep or get off the pot. (laughs) So what did you want to be before you decided to become an opera singer? Oh, I went through a couple ideas. I was working for the federal government, so I was very much considering the Foreign Service um, or FBI, something like that. Um, I wanted to also be like a, like a UN negotiator because I, I speak a couple languages. So I was like, oh man, I'll just go to the UN and I'll be an interpreter and I'll be a negotiator. <laughs> so it was all, all kind of like international relations stuff. You know who Mafalda is? I do not. No, well, she's a comic uh, comic book uh, written by... Oh, Mafalda. Uh, yes, Mafalda. Yes, sorry. Oh. I understood my father and I was like, oh, I don't know who father sorry. Mafalda. Mafalda, yes. <laughs> She, um, when I was a kid, I used to read her comics all the time. And um, she also wanted to be an interpreter in the UN. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking, that's what I want to do when I grow up as well. And I got, oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I started learning all these languages and I never actually made it to the UN. But, you know, here well, I am. <laughs> few, few of the great, few of us do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, <clears throat> so you're child-free by choice. I am. And um, can you tell us a bit how you decided to be child-free? Is it something that you knew for a long time or? It is. Um, My mother tells me that from the first memories she has of me talking about children, I didn't want to have them. Um, My reasons are a little dark. um, So I hope it's okay to share something a little dark on your podcast. Yeah, whatever Um, you want to share. They are are many, really. I never had the urge. I never felt the need, which I know many of my girlfriends have, and many women do. I never felt that. And I always thought, well, if I do, then I'll reevaluate. And I never did. And, you know, now I'm at the age that, you know, I'm still of childbearing age, but I, I, I mean, it's, it's full on gone now. Um, I think the world is beautiful, but I think existence is often excruciating. And I never wanted a child to look at me and say, why did you do this to me? Why did you bring me here? Because I've asked that and not in a, you know, I love my mother more than anything. And I, there's no blame or anything like that. I'm, I'm grateful to be here, but I have asked that. And I never wanted anyone to ask me that. So that's sort of the, that's the dark horse <laughs> answer. Um, and then the other answer is, you know, probably one you hear very often, you know, hey, the world's so darn overpopulated. If I want a child, I'll find some way to adopt one or in, other, in some other way be a parent to it. Um, you know, I uh, 
don't have a husband. I have not ever been married, though I've had relationships and um, I've never been in a relationship long enough or of a depth and profundity that I would have considered it. Those are my reasons. Well, those are all valid reasons. And mm-hmm. you, you know what you just mentioned about, you know, the, the dark side, which I don't, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't feel it's it's too dark. Um, it's mm-hmm. being realistic. And there's a current of a, philosoph- a philosophical current called uh, antinatalism and evilism. Have you heard about mm-hmm. them? No, I saw them mentioned on your podcast, but I, I, I don't know a lot about them now. Yeah, well, I, I could recommend it so you can check them out because mm-hmm. they do talk about how we are brought into this world without permission from our, I mean, we don't give anyone permission to bring us into this world and everything in this world is suffering. And then when we're talking to one of the people who are actually like one of the main voices of this, of this uh, movement, uh, we were like, well, but we, we have happy moments sometimes, you know, we enjoy nice things. And she was like, yeah, of but course. yes, but every single the thing she said that got me because I was like, Oh my God, was just think about every single thing that you have enjoyed that you have, um, you know, been happy about. There's somebody on the other side of the coin suffering because of that. And I don't know that that's true, actually. I don't believe that my standing at the top of a rock and viewing a beautiful sunset hurts anybody. I definitely think my buying a piece of clothing that I think is beautiful that was created by slave labor somewhere in Indonesia is bad. Whether I know about that or not, hopefully we start to be more knowledgeable about, you know, how our decisions affect people and, and their suffering. But I would strongly disagree with that as a, as, a, as a generalization. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was like a very strong stance when we mm-hmm. spoke to her about this. And I also thought there are moments in which I'm just happy. Like you said, you know, standing on the top of a, of a rock, I, I'm happy when I'm watering my plants. Why am I hurting because I'm watering my plants, you know? But, right. you know. It's, it's, it's philosophies and, and yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who think uh, the same way that you, mm-hmm. in, in that regard. You're listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. You are a former bone marrow donor. I am. I would really like to know about that experience. So I, as I mentioned, I grew up in Germany and I grew up in Germany in the 80s and early 90s. And during that time, there was the um, mad cow outbreak, whether it was or wasn't, it it was, according to official people. Um, And I was a fairly regular blood donor. And when I was in college in New York City in probably 2000 or late 90s, sometime around then, I went to go give blood and they had changed the rules. So now they asked me, you know, did you ever live in Germany or England during this time? I said, yes, I did. And they said, well, you're forever disqualified from donating blood. Would you like to donate bone marrow? And I was like, I have no idea what that is, but why not? Sure. So I joined the bone, well, not donate, but join the registry. So I said, sure. And I signed up, not literally not knowing I had no idea what I was doing or what I was signing up to do, but I thought, that sounds fine, sure. And then three years later, I was called as a match for a woman who um, was, her immune system was completely compromised. She was in isolation. She was going to die. And I was matched with her. And so I donated. And she lived for 15 and a half years and passed away this year. Wow. So you donated your bone marrow to somebody you didn't know. 
I didn't know what you were signing up for. Is that painful, by the way? I've heard it's really painful. Yeah. So that's one of the myths that I like to debunk. So there are two ways of donating bone marrow. And one I have heard is quite painful, which is when they extract it from your hip. I did not undergo that procedure. I went through a procedure known as PBSC or peripheral blood stem cell donation, which is where you inject yourself with hormones to increase your, I always forget what white blood cell count, red blood cell count, whatever is in your bone marrow. You increase it to such a level that it spills out of your bones and into your blood, basically. It's like the layman's way of understanding it. And then they hook you up to this machine for two days and they take all your blood out, like basically all your blood and filter (laughs) out the stem cells and give you all your blood back. Wow. Then there's this little pouch of your your stem cells that go into the person. That's very interesting. So you're basically hooked up to a machine and they're like recirculating your blood during two days and taking out the stem cells. Yep. Mm -hmm. And And then that's it. And you befriended this woman? So we were not allowed to speak for a year, which is by law. And then a year after I donated, she called me on my cell phone and said, hi, my name is Peggy and you saved my life. I know. Wow. It's like the most, you know, I, I wish I had some. That was back before we sort of knew how to like had voice memos to record stuff and save stuff. But um, yeah, so we talked. Um, like every birthday and every donation anniversary for a couple of years. Then it kind of went to email, but every year we would email on our birthdays and our anniversary. And then she got very, very sick again and she lost most of her tongue and she couldn't speak or swallow or anything. So mm. we hadn't spoken in a while when she passed, but I was able to go to her funeral. Mm. Well, that's a very, I mean, it's, it's a bittersweet story, you know, because... Yeah. You could, I mean, at least helping her. How did, how did that feel, you know, helping somebody to live a longer life? Um, I'll, I'll send you a video where I, I and another woman talk about this experience. Um, and this is always something I'm super happy to share with people who listen because, you know, it's so, there's so many myths about it and it's underrepresented. But it felt um, really humble, like humbling, not humble, humbling. Um, a lot of people called me a hero, which I thought was really uh, wrong. It felt very wrong. It felt really intimate and very quiet and like, um, the most insane bond with someone that you have no connection to, but it, yeah, it was really intimate that it was like the sort of most quiet thing I've ever done. And also (sighs) like the most human just like simple human, like just by virtue of being me, I didn't do anything. I could have been a horrible person, but just by having my body, I could do that. It's just insane. It's yeah. like, I can't comprehend it. Yeah. Well, there's that, a part of it that's just incomprehensible. Yeah. Yeah. That warms up my heart a lot, actually. You know, to see that there's still good in the world because you know, <laughs> we hear so much, you know, happening and it's just like the news are just so discouraging. Yes. Every single day, and whenever I cross paths with people like you, have had the chance to actually do something good for somebody else in a very um, selfless way. I, I just, you know, humanity. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, and um, you know, if you are able to, I'll send you some information that maybe your listeners would like to check out in terms of joining the registry or anything like that, but. Um, definitely lots of myths to debunk and lots of information to share. 
Yeah, absolutely. So yes, uh, please do send me those links. I'll post them uh, down here with your interview so that our listeners can check them out if they are interested in learning a little bit more. Great. So uh, Kala, what do you like to do other than sing and serve (laughs) good food (laughs) with music? Um, Well, one of the things that I love about living in Los Angeles is that you can be outside hiking anywhere, any time of year. So I, I live in a beautiful apartment that gets a ton of sunlight. So I am outside kind of even when I'm inside, but I spend a lot of time outside. Um, luckily, the things that I do for my business are the things I love to do. So I, you know, drink wine and listen to music. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the culture scene here is so rich. Um, I think people finally realize that LA is not second to any city in the world, basically, in terms of art and culture. There's so much going on. So I do go to a lot of theater and music and things like that. And then there's so much to do within a two-hour drive. You can just, you know, you can drive out to Joshua Tree. You can drive up to Wine Country. You can drive down to San Diego in three and a half hours. And there's so much to do. So I guess that what I like to do is explore. That's what my whole business is about, is discovering and exploring. And that's my favorite thing to do. And then travel. Travel. Mm -hmm. So you you lived in Germany for a a long time, was it? I did. Why did you move to Germany? Your parents? I was born there. Mm-hmm. My, my parents moved there before I was born for uh, personal and political reasons. <laughs> they were escaping Nixon and uh, by choice, not like he sent them away. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and then I was born there and we just happened to stay there for a lot of years. So I grew up in Europe. And you were born there when it was still uh, Western Germany and Eastern Germany. I was just there in September in, mm-hmm. in, in Berlin. I was in Berlin for a few days and that was my first time in Germany. And just seeing the difference that is still lingers between what used to be the alleys part of the city and then the Soviet Union's part of the city is, is just mind blowing. Do you have any I- memories about that? period that oh, you want yeah. to share? I do. I, um, I mean, the, mem- the memory is really that it was just part of life, right? Like, oh God, they just took something over. Um, anyway, <laughs> of course, my cats have to decide the moment you're on a podcast, <laughs> let's have a big old play session. Um, I remember it being a part of daily life. I remember feeling like I was one place and millions of people were in an other place and we couldn't be in each other's place. Um, I do remember the wall falling very clearly. I remember David Hasselhoff on the top. Oh, I've been looking for so long. I remember that very, very clearly. I remember the news, people being electrocuted while they were trying to flee. I remember having a pen pal from what we called the DDR, the Deutsche Demokratische Republik, the um, East Germany. Um, yeah, I just remember it being a part. I remember we got a voicemail on my, on, you know, our answering machine. Um, we don't know who it was or what had happened, but I think my father had been conducting in East Germany and got back or something. And there was this ominous call on the m- machine that said, in German, you know, in 24 hours, you will be dead. Wow. And nothing ever happened, thank goodness. We don't know who it was or what happened, but that's sort of like, you know, hey, you American people going from West Germany to East Germany, that's not cool. So, you know, we were very much German 
but we were always not really German. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that sort of otherness was very much what I grew up with. But it's interesting when uh, you get to explore a culture, like immerse in a different culture, and then you come back home and then you start comparing cultures and then, you know, travel also gives you the possibility to do that. So, well, and I think, you know, you're, you're, you say, you know, come home. I, I had never lived here before. So I only started living here when I was 14. And the idea of home was very flexible for me. I never really felt like I was from anywhere. That question is always one that I'm like, I can't answer it. I'm not from anywhere. So, um, I think it was a blessing. I'm really glad that I got to grow up in Europe. Yeah. I could drive to any country in a couple hours. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's yeah. Great experience. Well, mm-hmm. Kala, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. We're running out of time, unfortunately. But sure. before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to add to our interview? Anything you want to tell our audience or, or tell me? Um, well, I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about something that I'm working on professionally, but the the upshot of it is this idea of sensory wellness. The idea that we take care of our physical health, we go to the gym, we eat right, we take care of our mental health, you know, we, we rest, relax, maybe we have a therapist, whatever. But this idea of sensory wellness to me is something that kind of blew my mind when I really started thinking about it. The idea that our senses are the things through which we experience the world and very rarely do we take time to care for them, to love them, to treat them with res- like active, purposeful respect and care. Take a little time and just what I call switch off to switch on. Get yourself a good playlist. Get yourself a good bottle of wine, some beautiful scents, some good friends, and just shh, just for a little time, give your senses a bath of love during this time and it will restore you to kind of take on this crazy period and get into the new year in balance. So. Well, thank you for that. That's really sound advice. And I'm going to take that as well. Good. <laughs> I think I need it. <laughs> well, thanks again for your time. Kyle. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the honest uproar, a podcast where modern child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. We hope you tune in next week for our newest episode. And since we love hanging out with you, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Honest Uproar and visit our website at thehonestuproar.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to share with your fierce, child-free firecracker friends. Until next time, continue fueling your inner fire.